Welcome back to another Danger Film. It's our first of 2019. Mm. We did a very, very in-depth interview with Brady Corbet for, you know, a good 20 minutes, which I think is in-depth, who's the director of Vox Lux. He was also the child star in 13, Mysterious Skin, grew up to be the director in Clouds of Sils Maria, was also in... What else was he in? He was in... Um, Mysterious Skin, uh, Martha Marcy May Marlene, and which is the seminal cult film. By cult, I mean living in a cult. Of- and the American version of Funny Games. He was the oh, other... Yeah. Twin that's not Michael Pitt who dies. Which I maintain is a fabulous remake. You know, I don't think it's actually a bad film. No, I think it's great. I think both those films are great. So he's learned a lot and this is his second film. He made another film called Childhood of a Leader starring Robert Pattinson about this kind of alternate history rise of fascism that's like if Inglourious Bastards is the Charlie's Angels of the art world, Mm -hmm. this was a bit more like Haniki, Serious and White Ribbon. Delicious. We talked to him, we started off talking about Sia and then we talked about genre and how he feels about movies and and it was kind of a wide-ranging interview and he gets kind of deep. We're also doing this introduction because we need to preface what happened with the interview. Exactly. So do you want to dive into what happened and why we did it this way? So welcome to FBI. We sat down in the beautiful phone booth that is tucked away in between the studios at FBI. And we're on the phone to Brady and Jack's looking at me going, the levels are bad. And I'm listening through my headphones trying to hear what's happening. And I'm, all I'm hearing is... So Jack and I are kind of wincing, gritting our teeth and looking at each other going, what are we going to do? And Brady's talking to us and giving us all these fabulous answers. And Jack and I are just looking at each other thinking, none of this is going to get recorded properly. This is just all going to be in DIY community radio equipment and it's not going to come through. And it didn't. So we're here to preface the interview (laughs) with a little notice that this is an interview that has been acted out by Jack Andre and the fabulous American performer Lily Bennett in the role of Brady Corbet. And I guess here it goes. Here it goes. Enjoy. Brady, I guess what I wanted to ask, what the main entry point for the for this movie is going to be for a lot of Australians is Sia. So are you cool talking about Sia for a little bit? Of course. Okay. Do you mind describing her involvement in the film and why you thought she was someone who you were really drawn to as a collaborator? Like why was Sia someone that was perfect for Vox Lux? Well, for a variety of reasons. First of all, my initial instinct was that with my screenplay, we needed nine or ten original songs for the film. I knew, of course, that the movie would not be made for $50 million, so I, I needed to create an entire original pop soundtrack, which is something that is labor-intensive and very expensive. And So my first thought was to actually try and collaborate with one of the pa- famous pop factories, you know? And one of the production companies that churn out 10 or 12 hits a year. And then I quickly realized that that would be a little bit difficult because it would be a little too decentralized, like you're giving the company an idea. The only reason I hadn't sat with a pop star was because I didn't know that many pop stars that completely write their own material. Um, and there's also the fact that I couldn't imagine a pop star taking time from their busy schedule to have me put this together. However, the only person who would probably try is Sia. And for a variety of reasons. First reason being that she not only does she write her own songs, she also writes music for many other pop stars. So I love the idea of working with someone who has a famous uh, for their own body of work as for being, you know, someone else's writer. And I felt that it was a great way for the soundtrack to represent, yeah, you know, more or less the full spectrum of pop music in the last 20 years. Which is to say we wanted some pop songs that had, you know, uh, a bubblegum influence and we wanted other songs that had an EDM influence. And so basically I reached out to her representatives a few years ago. I said, I'm making a movie about a pop star and I'm looking for someone to make the music for it and to surprise 
to my surprise, I got an affirmative kind of quickly. You know, we couldn't have made the film with without our participation, especially looking back. It seems so naive of me that I thought that this was something that, you know, I would be able to pull off relatively quickly. <laughs> and because, you know, without her, we would have... Um, we would have had access to producers and vocal producers and the session musicians and everybody that is involved in making the songs sound like they sound. That's so cool. So I feel very fortunate. I think the movie wouldn't exist without her participation, honestly. Can I just say that I'm from Adelaide, so I have this personal connection to Sia knowing that she's like a hometown girl. Also knowing that her stardom went in a similar trajectory to the film. A lot of her music was about trauma and was a lot more personal. I don't want to say it because became disconnected from her, but it does sound like she just sort of churns out hooks. Like she knows how to do it really quickly. And that seems like a similar trajectory to Celeste in the film. The thing is, she is wildly, wildly prolific. The The truth is that if this is the language that you speak, it becomes about constantly reordering, restructuring, restructuring. You know, it's about adjusting the pattern, which is, I mean, there are more complex patterns in classical music, but it's the same principles, you know. Um, some people just speak the language. I, for one, do not, you know. You know, I, I can bang on a guitar and I use a monitor, but that's about it. Sorry, my phone is buzzing off. My daughter is on winter recess. Uh, she's just dying to go back to her school and hang with her friends. Oh my God, that's so cute. How old is she? She's four. She's four years old. She's going to be five this summer. Aww, oh my God, that's so cute. Jack and I noticed that there are a lot of films that feature Sia's songs that have come out recently. And we kind of think that she's sort of like a secret ingredient in movies. But Vox Lux is the first time she's had a lot of creative input in a film. Why do you think Sia's music is so cinematic? And also, why the hell hasn't she been nominated for an Oscar? You know, it's such a shame. With a film like this, which is quite radical and at sometimes quite confrontational, you know, it's just political. It's a political thing. And sometimes those politics favor a film and sometimes they don't. And it's just the nature of the beast. I can think of dozens of examples of people that could have or should have been nominated for all those prizes over the course of their careers. But, you know, she is still very young and I think she's got time and she'll get it for the next one. Sierra and Natalie Portman are very recognisable artists. Did you want people to draw comparisons between their previous work and Vox Lux, like Black Swan starring Natalie Portman or Breathe Me and Titanium by Sierra? Not particularly, no. The thing is that, yeah, the answer is no. It's a way of marketing a film. Basically, the idea of Black Swan and Vox Lux being mentioned in the same breath is good for a film's marketing because Black Swan is a very successful film, and this is another radical go-for-broke performance from Natalie, and so it gets mentioned in the same breath. She dances in both films. I think that both films have radically different preoccupations. I can definitely say that Black Swan wasn't on my mind when I was conceiving the movie or making it, um, but uh, but that's just bound to happen. I mean, the thing is that an artist, you know, making a movie is not like painting a painting. You're inviting a hundred personalities to come up. You're, you're inviting a hundred personalities to come and put their mark on the film. And so I think that, of course, Natalie's body of work, you know, every performance is reflective of previous performances and related to things she's done in the past and the things she plans to do in the future because that is, in itself, its own art project. That's her own personal artistic contribution. So I think it's natural that people make those comparisons. 
We just did this long form podcast on this last night on our podcast called Cinema Girls, where I was totally singing Natalie's praises for always diving back into similar themes and fleshing them out and for choosing projects that sort of extend her oeuvre. That's really exciting to me. But I wanted to ask you about how younger generations are finding this film because I'm obsessed with this film. We we're talking about how maybe it's our new favourite film. And I was in a room with a bunch of other critics when I saw it who were older and seemed kind of perplexed by it. And we're using the words like mess which I thought was really stupid and simplistic. When I grew up in the time that this film is sort of set in and related to it in such a deep way. Well, yeah, the thing is, and I can't really say that the divisive reaction is consistent um, with um, amongst the sort of, like, I don't think it has anything to do with generational exactly. Like, I can see how it would. Like, I totally understand why the movie would speak to people that are in their 20s and 30s. Sorry, you know, you know what? I'm so sorry. Hold on one second. I just need to ask um, a group of people that have my me on a chain to remove me from it. <laughs> Cute. Just, just give me a second. I'm gonna come back and answer this question. No worries. Um, sorry. So, um, I mean, the thing is that because of of the film's very progressive construction, um, it, I, I'm. I'm not even remotely surprised by by the befuddlement that's occasionally met with. And I'm also not surprised by people who are locked in and in tune with it. Um, you know, I, I try, I can say only this, which is that the film uh, is a very, very carefully constructed um, uh, piece of architecture. You know, it's, there's nothing there which is accidental. Now, I understand that uh, there are things that people like or dislike or understand or don't understand, but none of this is an accident. So, um, so yes, I would have to disagree with the assessment for anyone that the film is a mess. Just because the characters are quite carefully choreographed mess and give the appearance of being a mess or messy does not make the film itself a mess, of course. Do you think that speaks more to how we critically look at in terms of Sorry. Do you think that speaks more to what we critically look at in terms of cinema and accept these days? I feel like a lot of films feel post-neorealistic or something to try and create some kind of sense of reality and this cohesive whole, whereas this film just sort of says, fuck, you, fuck that, and tries a bunch of different styles to make different points. I basically think that there are no rules when one sets out to make a movie, and I really despise genre as a concept altogether. I mean... I can't tell you how many fucking meetings I've had to endure where someone talks to me about, we're looking for something that's more romantic with the with some thriller elements. And you're like, what are you talking about? Just tell a story. Just tell the story you want to tell. Stop trying to market it before it even exists yet, you know? And I'm resistant to the notion that there is one way to bake a cake. And I believe that we can show viewers new ways of receiving and thinking about stories if we torture for torture the form a little bit and for example something me and my cinematographer talk and we're trying to achieve is creating perfectly imperfect pictures right images are often underexposed and then pushed and you know for us there is beauty in the mess but that's something when we extract grain from one image it's something that for us gives us the image character and richness and we think it's beautiful it's important for us to wear flaws on our sleeves. I always thought of the film in a very theatrical way. There was an act one and an act two. And so when characters come back in act two, they haven't changed very much because it's almost like we've wiped the stage clean. 
everyone is reincarnated as a new character, you know, 15 years down the line. I agree with you that we do live in a moment where viewers tend to think a performance is very good if it's very natural. And I love naturalistic performances, don't get me wrong. I've seen a lot of neorealist movies that I absolutely adore. But I also love really operatic movies, you know, really operatic performances. And I think it's important for us to test those boundaries as much as possible. Most of my favorite films, um, when I think about movies of Nicholas Rogue and, or F.W. Murnau, we're not talking about naturalistic films whatsoever. They have their own universe, and I like that very much. Hey guys, we're actually going out of time right now. No! Oh my god, I have so many questions. I want to talk about Nick Rogue now. Thank you so much for talking about to us. It's such a shame we didn't get on to Gregor Rocky. Hey, no worries, but thanks a lot for giving the movie your attention. I really appreciate it. This podcast is produced by FBI Radio in Sydney. Find more at fbiradio.com slash podcasts.